The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I'm Nick Rodriguez, and you're listening to the Liberation Mentor Podcast. I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles, California. Hope you guys are all doing exceptionally well, and uh, I appreciate all the feedback I've been getting about the show as of late. It really does mean the world to me. Another thing that means the world to me is if you leave a review for the show on iTunes, that helps me get the word out and attracts more listeners. The more people are listening, the more feedback I get. The more excited I am to do the show, the more often the show is going to come out. So if you're enjoying it, it's in your best interest to leave a review for me on iTunes. I think I've mentioned it before that many of the episodes that I record don't ever see the light of day just because, to be brutally honest, it's usually because I didn't like the guest and I didn't feel chemistry and I didn't like their message and I just, it just didn't gel. I just didn't, just didn't feel it. And that always happens or that only happens when I don't know the guest when I'm taking a leap of faith and I've responded to an email. Someone out of the blue has, has messaged me saying they'd like to come on the show. Sometimes I don't even respond or I respond saying, you're not, I don't think you're the right, a right fit for the show, but sometimes I'm on the fence and I decide to give them a chance. And that was the case with uh, Steve Hoffman. And the truth is that the show didn't go any way, anywhere near the way I expected it to. And uh, it was way better than I expected it to be. And he just turned out to be a super cool dude with a great energy. You'll hear it. This guy is one of those dudes who's just got, he's like a human dynamo. He just brings this powerful, powerful energy. It's not the same energy that I have. I've realized that. I'm not that. I'm not one of those people. I'm not one of those huge generators of like, you know, like I don't walk into the room and like just light everything up and you know, go, go, go. That's not how I operate. I'm, I'm more of a watcher and an observer than anything else. But it's great for me to interact with these guys because I just get so much out of it. And I think that you will as well. So let's listen to the episode with Steve Hoffman. Enjoy, guys. Welcome to Steve Hoffman, CEO of Founder Space and author of Surviving a Startup. Steve, or should I say Captain Hoff, thanks so much for coming on the show, my man. Nick, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's, it's good to have you here. What, what really caught my eye with uh, your bio is it seems that you, I mean, by the title of your book as well, have some of the keys to help men who start businesses make sure they have the best possible chance at success. And um, as someone who has started businesses and had successful businesses, but also not so successful businesses, I think that's a really cool thing. I wish I'd spoken to a guy like you 20 years ago. So I'm really excited to speak about that in particular. So um, maybe you could start with letting us know why you're qualified to, to give us this advice. Well, I have done a lot over the years. So most recently, I started Founder Space, which is a global startup incubator and accelerator. Mm -hmm. And that is now over a decade old. So I've been working with hundreds of entrepreneurs, mostly guys around the world who start their businesses and really need help navigating their way through it. But I'm not just 
the CEO of an accelerator. I've also done three venture-funded startups in Silicon Valley, <laughs> two bootstrap startups. So I have... I've been in the trenches. I know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. I know what it's like to have big successes and failures. And that has given me a lot of perspective and knowledge to share with entrepreneurs, especially on the emotional side and empathizing with what they're going through, but also on the tactical side, because there is so much entrepreneurs have to deal with. And there are so many pitfalls and mistakes they make that at least I try to help them avoid the mistakes I made and the mistakes I see entrepreneurs make all the time, the ones I'm working with. Okay. Well, so let's start with the ones that you made. What, what were your, I don't know, let's, let's go with three biggest mistakes that you made when you were during your, the course of your entrepreneurial career. One of the biggest mistakes was when I closed venture funding for the first time, I thought it was a huge amount of money. And my engineering team was three people, three guys, totally delivered on our product, which was an interactive TV show for MTV and Viacom, which launched our company. And they had worked day and night and they begged me for support. And so when I got that money, I said, go to town, hire as many people as you need, staff up, build a great team, and your workload will decrease and you guys can get back to a normal life. Well, that was totally the wrong advice. So this is something a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, when they're raising venture capital, don't understand. More people isn't necessarily what you want right away. Because these three guys, they knew the code inside and out. They had executed on everything, but they didn't know how to manage. They didn't know how to hire, and they hired way too fast. So by giving them the green light without really making sure that they knew what they were doing, they ended up hiring 20 engineers. And you can imagine, and this is 20 engineers in a few months. It was crazy. You can imagine hiring one engineer on a three-person team. That's a huge percentage increase. You know, you're going from three to four, a 25% increase right there. You do that, you know, you hire a person in a hundred-person company, it's a one percent increase. So these three guys, when they started hiring people, 20 people, they had to spend all their time getting the people up to speed. They hired way too fast, so they didn't vet the people. A lot of the people they were bringing on the team really weren't as good as them, and they should have been hiring people better than them. So if I had to do it again, I would have brought in a senior manager, not my three developers, who really knew what to do and put that person in charge of hiring. That would have made a, a huge difference. I didn't know. I learned the hard way. Mistake number two. I got a great buyout offer from a public company during the dot-com boom, and I turned it down. Why did I turn it down? Because you thought you were going to get bigger and make more money in the end. That's what I thought. Our venture firm came to me, and they basically, our venture capital said, don't take the money, don't take the buyout offer. We can do much better. Since it was my first venture-funded startup, and these guys apparently knew what they were doing, I listened to them. And that was my mistake because literally several months later, the dot-com bubble burst. Sure. And when it burst, everything went down. And you know, we could have exited right before that happened. So sure. mistake number two, trust your gut. And <sighs> you can always get more money, but if it's really good money, 
sometimes a bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. Mm. So I should have taken that. Number three, you know, my first startup, which was bootstrapped, was incredibly successful. It was a gaming startup. I'm totally into games. You know, the second startup was incredibly successful until it wasn't. Sometimes you just can't see these things like the bubble bursting happening. You know, we had every major TV company as our client, Warner Brothers, NBC, Viacom, all these companies. And still, we didn't make it out of that horrible space. The third mistake I made with that company, and all three of these were with my first company, my first venture-funded company, was that I should have pivoted. Like we, despite you know everything happening around us, uh, we stuck to our business model because we were making huge amounts of money. Like I said, we had you know all the major TV networks, Warner Brothers, they were all paying us. But as soon as that dot-com bubble burst, all that money dried up. But we didn't change our model. We figured we're going to find a way through this. We'll get the money. Something will happen. But all the venture firms shut down. They weren't you know, handing out any money unless you didn't need it. And boy, did we need it because we had raised $6 million in venture funding, $3 million in debt financing. We had all the debt financing coming due. We were in a world of pain. And what I should have done is literally gone. What I did right and what I did wrong was really interesting. So we're in this crisis. The right thing I did was I went to our land, I scaled down, I cut our team down. I went to our landlord and I said, look, just let us out of the lease. Like, you know, this is the dot-com bubble burst. You're not going to get anything from us. Just let us out. And nicely, he did. And so we got out of there quickly this, without him having to evict us or anything like that. And he forgave our debt. And then I went to the venture bank, which was now in bankruptcy, and hired an ex-Marine to bully the startups into giving them money because they were bankrupt and all these startups were going bankrupt. So I negotiated with him. I said the same thing. We can't pay you, but you can come in here and take our computers, take our IP, and just let us go scot-free. So we ended up shutting down the company without going bankrupt, just shut it down quietly. However, what I should have done is gone to that the, the bankers who had lent us all these millions of dollars that was coming due and said, look, let us keep running. Let us keep running and we will eventually pay you back. And then I should have radically changed our business model just to something completely different. And instead of trying to continue what we had built, but what we had built it was over four years. We had all the major networks as the media companies, as our customers, really hard to give that up. So mentally, psychologically, everything was geared towards doing that business. Although sometimes, you know, the world just, you know, the ground drops out beneath your feet and you really have no choice. You have to recognize that. Sure. It's largely, it's largely to do with your ego as well. I had a business that I'd been running for a long time. And there just came a point where I realized in its current form, it just wasn't going to work and I had to walk away. And uh, it's, it's sometimes difficult because as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a business person, the things you create, your, your businesses are, I mean, I wouldn't say they're like your children, but they, you're attached to them. You're oh, attached. Yeah. And it's very difficult to sometimes just have to be, this is, this is not the right thing for me or this is not the right thing for the market or whatever it might be. It's tough. It is really tough. I actually, you know, after 
that first startup, I questioned myself. I was like, should I do this anymore? This is so painful. Am I even equipped to do this? Like we had a great run and my first company was successful. So I had one success under my belt, but that failure hit me really hard, made Mm. me question a lot of things. I actually took a break, moved to Canada for a year, wrote a book, one of my very first book, which is on game design, got that published because I was into games. And it took me a year to kind of come back and get back in the game. One of my very first childhood friends, I remember his dad was a, a successful businessman that had, he had lost everything and built himself back up. And he said to me, and this was, this was 30 years ago, he said to me, business is like boxing. People only remember you from your last fight. And um, that's probably why it was so difficult for you. You had a success, but then you had a failure and, and that failure is what's freshest in everyone's minds, you know? Yeah. I, was, I could imagine, how can I go back and raise more money after I failed like this? What mm. can you do it? But you can. I'll tell every entrepreneur out there, every business person out there, you just have to do it. And what made me change my mind was at a certain point, I realized I'm defeating myself. I'm keeping mm-hmm. myself from moving forward. I'm telling myself the story that I can't do it, but I could just tell myself I can, and then you go out and do it. So interesting that you you mentioned the story. It's, this is this is happening very often with my show lately. Like I'll have a thought, or I'll reflect on something, or I'll come to an epiphany, and then in the next episode of the podcast, the guest confirms it. I like to think it's a serendipitous sign from the universe. But I came to this understanding on the weekend that everything. Everything in your life is just a story. Your life is just this collection of stories that you're telling yourself. So you might as well make it a great story, right? That's exactly my philosophy. You Mm. nailed it on the head. Yes, everything society tells us is a story. That's how we understand the world in terms of stories. Now, stories aren't reality. Like all the things we hear in the news and stuff, they're all pseudo reality. They're kind of, Mm. they have some basis in reality, but they are stories that we tell narratives that we understand in the context of other bigger stories and ourselves, our whole lives is a story we understand in the context of all the stories that are swirling around us. But we do have the power to rewrite those stories. Like you can and if you're going to write a story, make it a story where you're the hero, right? the loser. Yeah. Make it a story where you go out and overcome adversity. Make a story where you go out and conquer. You do amazing things. And even if you fail along the way, that's exciting. Like if you read, a, if you watch a great movie, if you read a great novel, you know, the heroes, they get crushed, they get beaten down, and mm-hmm. then they come back. So if you're not getting mm-hmm. beaten down, you can tell yourself it's not even a good story. Like sure. this is an, an exciting story. It's it's like uh, I, I tell some of my clients like when they're when they're struggling with challenges, I say to them, "This is a waypoint. This is a marker on the road to success. Everyone who makes it, everyone who builds something cool, everyone whose life is a great story, has a part of the story where they're fucked. Right? <laughs> like it's just it's just the nature of the game. That's the way it works. And uh, it helped me, and it seems to help them." Yeah. And you can kind of revel in your own being fuckness. You could say, <laughs> yes, this is that moment where I this get totally just... screwed, where I make every mistake, <laughs> where I'm down. What do I do now? What's uh-huh. the craziest, most exciting, most promising thing I could do right now? Absolutely. So Captain Hoff, your your examples were great, but they, they were very specific and maybe a little bit higher level than some of the entrepreneurs that uh, are listening to this show. I mean, not everyone is in in Silicon Valley dealing with multi-million dollar tech startups. What are some 
things you've identified that are common to to all entrepreneurs of all levels that mistakes they make that that you can share with us? So a lot of entrepreneurs, one of the biggest mistakes they make, and it you could be a small business, medium sized, large business, doesn't matter, is that they stick with the same things too long. They stick with them because they know them, even though they also know they're not quite working. So I tell entrepreneurs, like, if you feel like you're Sisyphus and you are just pushing that boulder up the hill only and have it roll back down and have you push it up again and roll back down, if you feel like this character in mythology, then you are not doing what you should be doing. Like the minute you recognize that, you need to reevaluate your life and say, look, I could be doing something different. So this is one thing I have learned. And the great entrepreneurs out there, the really amazing ones that I see, they try lots of things. They are always looking for opportunities. They literally, they'll try one thing, they'll go, like they'll put all their effort into it, but really for a very short time. And they'll really figure out, they'll hone in, is this going to become a big thing? And if it isn't, they just move. And then they try something else and then push, 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 push up. No, this isn't going to be the big thing. I don't care that I put energy into it or whatever. I'm cutting my losses. Move again. Really important lesson. Yeah. My, my, um, my very close friend and mentor Rocco, he says, he uses an analogy when it comes to trying, right? Because we persistence and trying are idolized in our society. We just think the answer is always just try harder and which isn't the case. So he says, windowsills are the shrines to the small gods of persistence and trying where one may always find dead flies. Ah, and <laughs> I thought I love that was it. very, it's, it's genius. It's true. Like trying harder is not always the answer. It isn't. Sometimes it, it isn't. I, I grew up with that myth that you just try harder. You just push harder on what you're doing. And I learned it just isn't true. It doesn't matter how passionate you are. Like there's a thing out there. If you want to create something great, it's not going to be from a wellspring within you, right? It doesn't matter how passionate you are, how much you care, how much stamina, endurance you have. You're that fly hitting against the window, trying to get outside. You need to try a different place where there may be a hole or an Mm -hmm. open door that you can get outside. So really, really important. This is a lesson I want every entrepreneur listening to relate to, they can relate to, and they need to understand is that you cannot create demand. Like, I don't care if you build the best product in the world or have the best service or the most talent. If it's a product, let's say a device that tickles raccoons, but raccoons don't want to be tickled. (laughs) No, you're never, (laughs) nobody wants to buy that device. Your raccoon tickler you're never going to sell it. It can be the perfect raccoon tickler, like like the perfect one. Nobody will come. And I have seen entrepreneur after entrepreneur follow these paths where they think, well, I think this is great. The world's going to want this, but nobody cares. And they put a lot of time into it and they may do an excellent job. So when you're out there, think about this. If you're going to be successful in business, the thing that you need to do is not try to just make stuff that you think is great, but go out there and hunt for pent up pockets of demand that aren't being met by anybody else. 
If you can find one of these, like this demand there, where all these people are like, can, can I have this? It could be in a local level for your small business or on a global level for a huge business. But all these people need this and it's not being met in the way that they need. You can figure that out and deliver it to them. Then you have a real business. Love it. Okay, cool. So we got that one. What's, what's the next one, Captain Huff? Ah, the next one. So when you're an entrepreneur in the world, another thing you can do that really can make a difference is think about your business model. And I don't care if you're, again, a small entrepreneur, medium entrepreneur, or large entrepreneur. The best way to make money is not to always go out and look for new customers because that requires a lot of your time. It's often quite expensive. What you need to do is figure out how to monetize the customers you have consistently and often. So I call this recurring revenue and it works for every size business. Once you get a customer in the door with you, locked into you, you need to figure out how can I keep giving them services or products or features, whatever it is, that they continue to pay me for over and over and over. And getting them in the door is the hard part. So you want to make that as easy as possible. Like, how can I get these customers in the door at something that's very simple, a simple decision that they really need at a very reasonable price? And then how can I continue to give them more higher value over time that they pay me for? Sure. I mean, it's called a a low ticket offer that ultimately leads up a product ladder to a big Big ticket offer, is that correct? Exactly. But a lot of you know people don't really think about it. They're just like, they get a customer once and the customer leaves and they never see them again. You know, And they're like, why am I not making money? <laughs> why is it so hard to make money? It's well, so because interesting. When you get that customer, first of all, never let go. Like ne- always keep that customer engaged with you. And then figure out everything that customer needs in kind of a life cycle and continually schedule to give it to them. If you can do this, you can create a recurring revenue stream, which is super powerful. Mm-hmm. Really like that. It. It's the example that I think of, uh, you know, I have many friends who own martial arts gyms and we were, a friend of mine and I were visiting a friend's gym that wasn't doing well actually. And uh, we had just done some training and it was mid afternoon and there was no one else there except me, my buddy and the owner of the gym. And uh a customer wandered in, a potential customer. And the owner, I mean, he didn't really make much of an effort to get this guy's details or to sign him up. And the guy eventually walked out. And my friend just said, man, you just lost. He said, how much do you charge a month? And the guy was like, I charge 200 bucks a month. So he said, you just lost at least 2,400 bucks if you if you could have signed him to a year-long contract and probably more if he would trained with you for all the way through to a black belt. And that really stuck with me, this idea of... Um, you know, the lifetime customer value, it's, uh, if you do it right and you look after your customers, you know, they, they can, they'll look after you. Yes. And it allows you, once you realize lifetime customer value, it allows you to invest a lot more in them, like in getting them like marketing, because you're like, mm-hmm. wow, this is a, you know, this customer is worth thousands of dollars, not just $200. How do I get that customer? And then when they're in the door, you realize the value and you, you will do like, when you run, he should be running these programs where they're com- they're always engaged. They're always like, he's giving them more than they expect. He's figuring out, he's, you know, going, talking to those customers. What do you want? Why are you making the decision? Why are you walking out without signing up? If they leave, he should know why they're leaving. Like, <laughs> what about his gym? D- turn them off. 
Like, what sure. is this person looking for? Because if you know what they're looking for when they walk into a gym, you can give it to them. It's not that hard. But if he doesn't ask, he'll never know. Yeah, it can also, I mean, to be fair, uh, Steve, it can turn in on itself because I have another friend who is, uh, <laughs> actually, I kind of hope he's not listening to this, but he, he probably needs to hear it. He's got a very successful chain of martial arts gyms. And what he does is he he builds his programs around the belts, obviously, because that's the nature of martial arts. You know, you're, you're constantly trying to progress to the next belt. And then what he was finding is after two or three years, when the, the students eventually got their black belt, they were losing interest and they, they were leaving. So he created a gold belt. And <laughs> myself and the rest of the, the functional martial artists that know this guy all just laughed at that because it kind of was lacking in integrity. But either way, I mean, he... he you he don't want right to do idea. that. Like, yeah. yes, you don't want to, to make up a gold belt. But what he could do, which would make a lot of sense, is have complementary martial arts. There isn't just one type, right? There are many different types of martial arts, Taekwondo, Kung Fu, Karate, whatever. He could make uh, complementary courses that they could sign up for because the more they know, the better off they'll be in the long run if they if they are passionate about it. So. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not going to argue with you on that one because you just listed like three of the crappiest martial arts. But ah, yes, it shows how much about <laughs> I know about martial arts, right? <laughs> I just watch my Bruce Lee movies. I don't know anything else. Yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm just kidding with you. Um, so I want to know uh, that this is all great advice so far. I'd like one more tip. And then I want to ask you about the, the time you figured out how to become a Hollywood executive, because that sounds fascinating to me. Sure. So one more, one more tip for, for the, the would-be entrepreneurs or the new and struggling entrepreneurs out there. So closing deals. I think it's really important to understand how to close deals. I was the worst salesperson ever. I had no clue on how to sell, like how to get people to, to buy anything. But I figured out, and I figured it out the hard way after many, many, many failed attempts, that when you want to sell people, there's a few things you need to do. So no, number one, you need to listen to them. Like you need to, like we just said, you need to listen to your customers. Like what, mm -hmm. figure out what they really want. Because until you, if you're just talking, mm -hmm. you're never going to figure that out. Number two, the best way to sell somebody is to offer them value right away, to be helpful. Like if they're trying to make a buying decision, be as helpful and honest as possible. If it's the martial arts person, start educating them about martial arts. You know, this is what we do. This is thing. What do you want? What's a good fit for you? Back and forth with them, not trying to sell them, trying to really find the right fit. And if you find out that what you offer isn't the right fit for that person, steer them in the right direction. You know, that attitude works every time. The next thing you should do is always set a deadline, like give people uh, don't just let somebody walk away without a decision made. You should have a structure. The person selling should be taking them down a path with a structure where they must make decisions at certain points of time. So if it's a big long-term sales, like to a big corporation, you're going to set up like a month-long sales cycle. And there'll be different points where you literally say, you're going... Uh, I've given you everything you need to know. I'm supportive, but we're really busy. Either you make a decision now or we're going to move on. You have to say those things. With a customer that walks in the door in a martial arts thing, you can't do that. But you can give them time-sensitive uh, discounts. Like if you sign up within the first you know, week or so, we're going to give you this whole extra thing. So 
you know, and if you sign up today, let's have that happen today. You really want to structure it because a lot of people will just put off making decisions. It's just human nature. So those three things combined, they seem really simple. But if you have to actually work out how to do those in just the right way, script them out and practice, 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 and you get really good. Like your sales will go way up. For sure. Well, you sold me on this podcast. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So so Steve, thank you for that. That's that's all um, wonderful advice. I've heard some of it before uh, in in different forms, but you you made it really clear and, and actionable. Uh, I, I want to hear now about this. You figured out how to become a Hollywood executive in two months. I live not far from Hollywood and this town continues to blow my mind with the strange way things are done. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear about that. Please share, share with us. Sure. It's a crazy story. So like so many dreamers out there, I went to film school. I went to USC film school and I got my master's degree. And when you enter Hollywood, it means absolutely nothing. Like they don't care. Like you, you study, you, you know, you essentially wasted your time. You got this master's degree, but nobody cares because in Hollywood, it's who do you know? What can you do for me? You know, it's that whole world, a a big giant shark tank. So I didn't know what to do. I had no clue. Like, how do I break into Hollywood? But I had spent all this time. I was so passionate about it. I got the names of a hundred and addresses of 150 top executives in Hollywood the big production companies and producers. And literally, I wrote each of them a letter. So I sent out 150 letters, physical letters, not emails, <laughs> physical letters. And I waited. And out of 150, I got three responses, just wow. three. So, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't a high hit rate, but I got three responses. The first one I got was Disney. So Disney calls me in. It's the head of production for Disney. She calls me in. I thought, I've got it made. I've got Disney. So I go in there, sit down for the interview. It's going really well, back and forth with her. And then in the middle of the interview, she asks me a trick question. She says, what films do you like? And this is to a guy who just graduated, spent three years in film school, watching all these classic films, these art films, these experimental films. And I just started to rattle off all these esoteric names, like of amazing films. But clearly, they weren't Disney films. As I was doing that, she looked at me and she said, what about Disney movies? And me being so naive and so out of touch, I was like, well... I, you know, used to watch Disney stuff when I was a kid, but I haven't watched a lot recently, which was the truth because I'd been at film school. Sure. And the instant I said that her face dropped, just completely dropped. And she couldn't wait to get me out of her office. Wow. So the first thing is I didn't understand a thing about what I would, I should have researched it. I should have, I should have come in prepared. I didn't. I just, I came in honest, but totally unprepared for that interview. And I Mm. blew it. The second response I got was from none other than the, it was a phone call just out of the blue from the producer of Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. Wild. He called me up from this young guy. I'm like, oh my God, like, this is amazing. So we start talking. And the first thing out of his mouth is, I don't have a job for you. I just liked your letter and I wanted to say hello. And so we talked and talked and talked. 
but no job came. So that went away. And I'm like, oh, strike two, one more strike and I'm out. I got my third inquiry and it came from a guy called Chuck Freeze, F-R-I-E-S. Mm-hmm. Big Hollywood producer, produced literally hundreds of TV movies and miniseries and all sorts of different things. Didn't he produce a bunch of cartoons as well, if I'm not mistaken? I don't. I think you're confusing that with some other freeze. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He produced, yeah, all, all these, no cartoons that I know of. Okay. And he invited me into his office, which at the time was on Hollywood Boulevard, literally across the street from the Man Chinese Theater. So they occupied the top offices, this big skyscraper with his name on the top. Mm-hmm. I walk into his office. It was this huge, just like you would imagine a Hollywood producer having with mm-hmm. all these Emmys on the wall, everything. And if you've seen the Coen Brothers movie, Barton Fink, he looked like the producer in that movie. This big, fat, gray-haired guy mm-hmm. sitting behind this huge desk. And when I walk in, he goes, Hoffman, okay, <laughs> have a seat. <laughs> I was like, okay. And he goes, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I want to be a writer and director. That's what I want to do. That was my dream. He goes, ah, I don't know about that. We'll see. And that was the interview. Like, that was it. I was out (laughs) of the office. A couple weeks later, I get a call from his assistant. And she says, come in. We've got a job for you. I'm like, a job. (laughs) It turned out to be one of the lowest jobs on the totem pole. So I, he hired me as a reader. And a reader's job, for those of you who don't know, is to read all the horrible, awful screenplays in the world so that the executives don't have to read them. You essentially screen them out. You read the bad sure. screenplays, you, and you write up a synopsis and say, don't read this. Uh-huh. <laughs> one in a hundred may be good enough for them to actually read. So, And you get paid almost nothing. Like, you can't even live off of it. So. Mm-hmm. I was a reader. I went in. Uh, he had pe- the development executive under him, you know, director of development running the whole process. So I went to work for her reading. I was doing this reading job and I was thinking to myself, I spent three years and a lot of money in graduate school mm-hmm. to read these awful scripts. And that's it. That's the only job I get in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So after a couple of weeks, I asked to speak to Chuck Freeze again. I wanted to talk to the big boss. So I made an appointment, waited, invited me in. He goes, Hoffman, what is this? You're not satisfied? I'm like, I'm satisfied, Chuck, but I could do more. I could do so much more. I can write. I can direct. Hoffman, I don't know about you. Go away. (laughs) I go away. But sure enough, I get this call. Uh, from his son. You know, nepotism is everywhere in Hollywood. Uh-huh. Everybody hires their kids. And his son was, you know, a lawyer, but he also worked for Chuck in his office, you know, doing all the legal work. And he had his own projects. His producer, his real dream was to be a producer, but he was very bitter man, very bitter because he was working for his dad. Like he hadn't made it on his own. And he was just not a happy, he would, would, everybody was terrified of him. He'd walk through the office scowling at everybody. So I went in and worked for him and I was like, he was, he just didn't smile at all. He just gave me a project and said, research this. And it was a project on the Oregon trail. Like they're going to make a movie. And he Mm -hmm. said, research this, but I got a writing assignment. He said, write up the synopsis for this as a mini series, as a multi-part series, right? Mm -hmm. You write this up, give it to me. And I saw that as my chance. I worked like crazy on that. 
did, mm-hmm. and I kept my reading job. So I was doing both at the same time. Yeah. I delivered it to him. When I delivered it to him, you know, he calls me back into his office. He's like, this is good. You did a really good job. I was like, yeah, that was the first time he said anything nice to me or anybody else that I know. So Mm -hmm. I was really happy. I got a compliment. As soon as I walked out of that office, I walked straight to the assistant of Chuck Freeze and I said, I want to talk to Chuck. (laughs) I wasn't giving up. So Chuck invites me in the office a few days later. I'm like, Chuck, Chuck, you know, your son loved what I did for him. Like I told you, I can write, I can do more. He was like, Hoffman, don't you ever give up? Aren't you ever satisfied? <laughs> I was like, but I can do more. Hoffman, yeah. go away. <laughs> I go away, go back to my reader job. I wait about a week. And then I come in to pick up more scripts. And when I go into the office, the director of development, she, I'm waiting for my script, but she is just glowering. She is shoot. Her eyes are literally shooting daggers at me Uh and I'm looking at her and I'm like, what do you got? And then she stands up very rigid and says through gritted teeth, you got me fired and storms out of the room, like right past me. Wow. And I'm like, like, what are you talking about? Uh Then Chuck's assistant comes in and says, Chuck wants to speak with you. So I go, (laughs) go next door into his office and I sit down and I'm like, just totally baffled. I'm like, what's going on? And then Chuck looks at me and he goes, Hoffman, you're our new head of development. Amazing. <laughs> Literally. I was yeah, and I was like, and I felt mixed emotions. I felt badly for this woman who I had nothing against and didn't even request for her job. I was requesting a writer director job. And then I felt kind of, I had actually broken into Hollywood. It was a real confusing time. So Uh then I leave his office and I go into her office, which is now my office. (laughs) And I'm standing there and I go to the window and looking down at the man Chinese theater out the window. And I don't know what to do. I don't even know what she does besides hand me scripts. (laughs) I have no idea what a television development executive does. And then the phone starts ringing (laughs) and I'm like, should I pick it up? It's like not my phone. I don't feel like it's my phone. It finally, it rang so much. I picked it up. I was like, hello? And they're like, this is ICM. It's the big age, one of the big agencies, the big in Hollywood. And they're like, can we send you this screenplay? Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, sure. And I hung up. <laughs> and then I go to the desk, her desk, and I sit down because I don't know what else to do. And then all these readers start to come in who had met me over the past two months in the hallway. And they were like, Steve, what are you doing behind her desk? And I'm like, well, I'm your new development executive. I'm in charge now. But they they were baffled because many of them had been doing this job for years. Like they had mm-hmm. literally been reading for years. I was the new kid on the block. And yeah, but was, they didn't didn't have the balls to step up. And, they didn't have the balls. Yeah, yeah. And, but I didn't even know where the scripts were. So they had to show me and I handed them out. And then it got really strange because now I'm in this job. The next day I come in and Chuck invites me into a meeting uh, with another one of his sons and, and him. And they are talking about a new TV series that they want to produce, a, a sitcom. And they're, they're, they have this female star in mind that they want to package it up. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. And I had been to film school for the past three years. 
And I didn't watch any TV during that time. And I uh, had been watching art films, like I told you, art films. I had no idea what they were talking about, like which stars were which. I didn't read The Hollywood Reporter or Variety or any. I just knew nothing about the actual business of the industry. Only knew I wanted to be a writer. And then Chuck turns to me and goes, Kaufman, who do you think we should have cast for this role, the female protagonist? I was just at a total loss. Like I didn't know any <laughs> anybody. And I was like, I so quickly I said, Chuck, let me think about it and I'll get back to you tomorrow. <laughs> That's all I could say. Like nice. I couldn't wait to get out of that meeting. Got out of the meeting. I'm trying to think, what do I do? And then I remembered my brother's best friend was a, a starving artist, filmmaker in Hollywood. And he just happened to have a photographic memory. And he just happened to be obsessed with everything Hollywood. Literally, he knew every A-list actor, B-list actor, C-list actor, extra on every TV show and movie ever. Like he was just like knew everybody. It was all in his little head. So I called him up and I was like, Randy, Randy, tell me, here's the part I described her. Who should I have? Who should I cast in this role? And he goes, well, Steve, if I were you, I'd cast this person. That would be my first choice. This one would be my second choice. And this is my third choice. So I was like, wrote them down. <laughs> the next day I go into Chuck's office and he's sitting there again with his son. And Chuck turns to me and says, Hoffman, have you thought about it? Who should we cast? I said, Chuck, I did think about it. <laughs> I think we should have, this would be the best person we could get. This would be the second choice. And this would be the third choice. Chuck looks at me, his eyes wide. And he goes, Hoffman, you're brilliant. <laughs> so, That's great. Uh, so I literally faked my way into that job. And That's honestly, amazing. over the next year, I was just like, I'm a hard worker. So mm -hmm. I just played catch up. I was reading Hollywood Reporter every day, Variety. I was doing everything, learning the entire job of a development executive. And I mastered it. I mastered that job. And by the end of the year, I actually got an opportunity a crazy opportunity to go to Japan and work in Sega's headquarters. And Sega was no the number way. one. Yes. That's number, nuts. Yeah. Number one game company. And I told you I'm into games. Like I'm a was game this, guy. Uh, was this before or after the Genesis was released? It was after the Genesis was released. They were working on the Saturn and they just become number one. Oh, so you were, you were, you were there for the decline basically. I was there. No, they were still peaking at that point. They were like okay. on top and they were big in, they were the number one video game company and the number one arcade game company in the world. Mm -hmm. So they were like just on top of the world. And I'd met so, the chairman. If I may interrupt you, yeah. Captain Hoff, this is fascinating to me. I, I read a book on the, the console wars and it's, it's my understanding that, uh, and this is going to get super geeky for the listeners. If you're not into video games, you probably won't appreciate this, but I am into video games and this fascinates me. So it's my understanding that, um, you know, and during the 16-bit era with Genesis, Sega, yeah, they took the lead. But then what happened is the American branch was doing all this amazing creative, creative marketing efforts and they were, were really doing really well, but they were hamstrung by Sega of Japan and they're they're stuck in their ways attitudes. Is that, is that accurate? I would say it is. So that's a whole nother story, but yes, I was embedded in the headquarters with uh, the teams. I was like the only foreigner in my division and I saw the problems they were having. Like I, mm -hmm. they had scaled really fast. They had grown incredibly fast and they were, but they were still at heart, a Japanese company. 
the U.S. and Japanese groups were just entirely different worlds, mm-hmm. hardly communicated. Like it mm-hmm. was that communication between the two was the problem. I see. I see. You got to say again. I think we'll, we'll finish with this. And well, I have one more piece to end the story. Sure, let's hear the it. film, the Hollywood story. So yeah. literally, I met the founder of Sega, who ha- happens to be a U.S. citizen. It was an American, and it was called Service Games, but it became mm-hmm. a Japanese company. Really interesting okay. story. So he was the cousin of one of my producers in the TV production company who introduced me, and I just said, "Wow, games are going to be bigger than movies and TV. I know it. I'm going to join this. Right? This is a huge opportunity for me." So I decided to go there, and then I went back to Chuck. And, and, you know, it gave me this big break in Hollywood. And I was like, Chuck, I'm going to join this game company in Japan. He was like, Hoffman, are you crazy? <laughs> like, I gave you this big break and you're going to go to Japan and work on what? <laughs> he couldn't believe it. And then he, then he starts lamenting, what am I going to do without you, Hoffman? Why need another Hoffman? And then, you know, because he's a funny guy, really nice guy. And I was yeah. like, Chuck, you know what? There is another Hoffman. There's my brother. He goes, your brother? And he goes, where does he work? And I go, well, right now he's working in a record store, a dead end job you know, uh-huh. in LA. Like he has no, no, nothing going on. No, no experience. Yes, it's, it's, his name was Quentin Tarantino. Or was yeah, that, that was a video store? Yeah, right. it, was, it was Doug Hoffman. And I was like, you could hire another Hoffman. And he goes, okay, we're hiring another Hoffman. <laughs> So he hires my brother, puts him in my job just because his name was Hoffman. And then I'm off to Japan. That's great. How did it go with your brother? I'm interested. Not so well. Uh-huh. He, he, but with, within a year, he got fired. There's only, one, there's only one Captain Hoff. He's just not as hard a worker. Let's put, he's super smart, but he uh-huh. is not as motivated. Put it that uh-huh. way. Fair enough. Oh, Steve, I... That your story is fascinating. I'm sure we could speak for five hours on, on the stuff you've done. And I definitely want to have you back on the show at some point. But sure. for now, let's, let's end it there. And, and um, let's direct the listeners that I'm going to go read your book straight away. Because if it's anywhere near as fascinating as you are as a human being, it's going to be wonderful. Thank if um, the, the listeners want to read your book, or if they want to find out more about you, where's the best place for them to go? So if you want to find out more about me, go to founderspace.com. So uh, tons of videos, tons of free content for entrepreneurs, all this stuff there. You can also find my books at founderspace.com or you can go to survivingastartup.com, which is the name of the book or Amazon. And if they want to reach out to me personally, you can, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on every social network, you know, just search for Steve Hoffman or Founderspace. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. I really appreciate you. I'm sure the listeners do too. Thanks, Nick. This is a great interview. If you guys had a chance to read my book, Align, The Modern Man's Guide to Health, Wealth and Freedom, which you can find for free in digital format at liberationmentor.com forward slash book or forward slash aligned, you might have remembered how I mentioned in the introduction that the world belongs to those who take action. And I really believe that. I've said on another episode of the show that in life, there's two types of people. There's talkers and there's doers, right? And it's the doers, the people who take action that get the best of everything in life, right? Because doing stuff takes courage. And the reason it takes courage is because you might fail. But as someone like Steve demonstrates, 
you have to fail repeatedly in order to hit the success that you want to hit. And it's only those people who choose to have the courage to keep trying and keep doing and failing and, re and repeating and practicing and learning. They're the ones who get the best out of life. And I don't know about you guys, but I am someone who wants the absolute best out of life. I know I deserve the best of everything that life has to offer, but I don't say that with entitlement. I know I deserve it, but I also know that there's a cost, right? And that's taking action. So if you're listening to this and you are not where you want to be in life and you've known for a long time that you're not where you want to be and you're wanting to break through, start by taking action, whatever that might be, a small action. Uh, there's another, another expression I've heard, which is starting is half done. And I, I really believe that's the case. Like just take that first little step towards what, what it is you want to accomplish in your life. And the chances of you doing it are massively amplified. Really enjoyed that episode of the show. Thank you for listening. And I will be back in a week or two. Until next time, keep the faith. <laughs>